Welcome back to Farm to Tabor. Today we have Patrick Wyman, who is a historian who runs the Tides of History podcast. Of special interest for Farm to Tabor, he's a historian who also grew up doing farming construction work in central Washington. So we're going to get all up in the guts of farm history from the bottom up. Uh, who did the work? Who owned the land? And what that meant politically in ancient Rome, during the colonization of the Americas, and today. There's some surprising parallels, some interesting takeaways, and we had such a great time. Take it away, Patrick. Okay, so I'm Patrick Wyman, and I host the Tides of History podcast. I got started doing history podcasting a couple of years ago, about two and a half years ago, after I finished my PhD in history. I had no idea what I was going to do with myself. I was working as a sports journalist on the side. I figured, oh, I don't want to lose history entirely. So I started doing a show on the fall of the Roman Empire, which had been my academic specialty. I did that for the better part of a year, and after that, I kind of went pro. I started partnering with a podcast network called Wondery to do the show I currently do, Tides of history, which uh, started off doing episodes kind of 50-50 on the fall of the Roman Empire and then 50-50 on the early modern period. Now I'm 100% in the early modern period and loving it. It is nice to get out of antiquity for a little while. So <laughs> so that's where I'm at right now. Amazing. Very cool. And um, I guess I should introduce myself as well. I do Farm to Tabor. I do a podcast on agriculture, labor, uh, environmental and sustainability stuff, and just kind of looking at how a lot of how sustainability has been marketed is mostly, again, about the marketing. There's a lot of fluff out there, and <laughs> there's there's a lot of loose ends that need to get tied in together uh, to make it really work. So that's kind of what Farm to Tabor is about. I started out life as a farm worker and then became a crop scientist. So it's a very different perspective on agriculture um, than we usually go for. So... Um, one of my favorite things, my husband's a historian, so I love talking to historians about agriculture and the food systems in previous eras. I think one of the biggest um, things that you'll often hear in, in sustainable agriculture is, well, you know, food systems only got long-distance travel involved in them very recently, and it's not natural. And if you know anything about history, that's just the biggest joke. So <laughs> um, I think today we want to talk about long-distance food trade in the Roman Empire, uh, how that broke down as the empire, you know, it kind of collapsed, kind of didn't. I mean, the, the Eastern Empire was still around, but the Western Empire and certainly trade routes were very different afterwards. And then um, the role of slavery in that and uh, how that might have changed over time and how um, big patricians estate, excuse me, big patrician estates who were making a lot of money off the slave trade really run, they, they really controlled the empire. They really ran Rome and, uh, what effect that had on the political trajectory of, of that, uh, empire. That all sounds really good. So um, let's uh, so let's start with kind of long distance food trade uh, in the Roman Empire because that was a really big deal. That was in fact the essential basis for the Roman economy writ large. Uh, like all pre modern economies, it was a predominantly agricultural one. Land was what mattered. Food production was what mattered. And you know, eighty percent of the populace, ninety percent of the populace in most places worked in agriculture. That was what people did with their time. Uh, that and of a necessity, that was what the economy was built on. Was food production. So 
Um, what set the Roman economy apart from the economies that existed before and the economies that existed after in the Middle Ages was the fact that there was a lot of long-distance trade in bulk goods, of which food products were one, right? So um, you think about it, it is hard to make long-distance trade in in bulk goods viable in, in the pre-modern world. If you don't have container ships and you don't have, like, you don't have enormous cities, um, there isn't necessarily that much demand for it, and also it isn't necessarily easy to do. Um, it requires requires low transaction costs. It requires um, a lot of scale. It requires infrastructure. It requires, and it requires centers of demand. So it requires cities or armies or, or things like that to, to make it worthwhile for you to do this. Right, um, and, and really quick. Um, so one of the things you'll run into, like in historiography, which is the history of history, is you know we kind of talked about how there was the Roman Empire and then it collapsed, and kind of a, a recent pushback has been you know there was a lot of trade routes still there. The Roman Empire in the East was still around and trade was still happening. Therefore, we should stop talking about it being a collapse. But if you look at food systems and trade of bulk goods, like they were trading silks and gems and perfumes and spices, you know, into the Middle Ages after the Roman Empire's collapse, but they weren't trading bulk goods. And that's a huge difference in how everything worked. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that's exactly why I think it is still viable to talk about a fall or collapse of the Roman world is precisely because I think that that kind of easy, long distance movement of cheap goods is what defines the Roman Empire. I think that that's the it was a space within which you could move lots of people and things. And what sets it apart from the time that followed is that you couldn't do that. It's not that there were no longer trade routes afterward, but the but what was being traded along those routes was luxury goods for elite consumption and not things for everyday people to eat. Yeah. So I guess the next thing would be talk about um, the Roman Empire kind of went from what we would call like a peasant based agriculture, um, which I do actually have some questions about. I'm not that well versed in it. But then it kind of transitioned into patrician estates uh, staffed by slave uh, enslaved people, I think typically came from like areas where they'd done some conquest and they took all the people and sold them into slavery, that kind of thing. So let's talk about how that really drove the politics of the empire, just like the political economy. Okay, yeah, those are that's a series of really good questions. So there are a few different things going on there. First, in early Roman Italy is largely an Italy of small-scale cultivators. So you have what are what seem to be effectively small family farms. Uh, as the republic collapses, at least or so the story goes, those small. Um, single uh, kind of single family or single household farming units get replaced by large estates owned by Rome's wealthy elite. And uh, in in some cases, these estates are crewed by slaves. In a lot of cases, they're crewed by slaves, really cheap labor that were the product of the empire's conquests along its peripheries. So you get a nice war, um, you're, a, you're a wealthy Roman general, and uh, you take captive, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 prisoners, and they immediately glut back back into Rome's slave market and lower the price of labor. If you happen to be the general who was who was on that campaign, you get even more privileged access to, to, to that supply of enslaved labor. So um, it radically changes the, the, the labor market of the late republic in terms of who is doing agricultural work, and it radically changes uh, kind of the the kind of settlement pattern in the in the countryside. Like you go from having lots of small scale cultivators to 
having a few very large estates. Now, small cultivators never entirely disappear. We know this because of more recent kind of archaeological excavations and uh, uh, analyses of field patterns and things like that. We know that there were always some small cultivators. The question is how the balance shifts over time. And as the Romans take over in, in, in what become the provinces, you, in large part, you, you get some kind of small cultivators left over, but you also get the imposition of a villa pattern, uh, especially in the West where you have uh, estates centered around a really large and luxurious house that belongs to an aristocrat. Those estates are not necessarily crewed by slave labor, though some are, um, but there is, there is in all cases a really strong um, social divide between the people doing the working on the estate and the person who owns the estate. So whether it's slave labor or not, you have a very hierarchical and elite-dominated settlement pattern in the countryside. You know, that's really interesting that you mentioned that because the podcast that I re-recorded today was with uh, Carrie Lee Merritt, and she's a historian of slavery in the pre-Civil War South. And it's really interesting because you mentioned uh, the growth of the slave trade destroyed the market for free labor. And you see that exact same thing happening in the South. Um, you had a lot of poor white folks who'd been pushed off their land by the growth of plantations. So there was no land of their own left to farm. And there were no jobs because all the jobs were held by slaves. So you have this class of people with you know, no means to support themselves, uh, no education. And it's really interesting because you see the same exact thing happen in, in, uh, in the Roman Empire and in the South, uh, same exact thing. And if you look at some of their letters, there's actually a planter. Her name was Eliza Lucas Pinckney, which is such a Jane Austen name. Uh, <laughs> but she was like a sensation in the plantation world because she was a white lady who figured out how to grow and process indigo, um, like she didn't figure it out. Like her slaves knew how to do it. And yeah, so, so she figured it out. Right. And, um, so she was the one who really commercialized it and kind of got it going on a large scale. So she's like this icon of white feminism. Right. And you look at some of her letters between her and her dad and her dad was writing a lot about how like this lifestyle is good. And this lifestyle goal, this lifestyle, bleh, this lifestyle is good. This lifestyle is historical. This is how they did it in ancient Rome. And so you look at the folks, their education system was really kind of built on studying the classics. And that sounds really good if you don't think what they're learning from the classics and what they're doing with it, which is fascinating. Yeah, this was a huge deal among the planter class was the idea of looking back, especially at kind of late Republican Rome and thinking this is the ideal system um, for humankind. And that, you know, they... The, the story that gets told, I think, in most kind of history classes below the below an undergraduate level is like, well, they took the form of government. They took the system of government. You know, they took the idea of having popular representation combined with um, kind of monarchical power invested in, ex in an executive, so on and so forth. What they also took from that was the idea that a slaveholding aristocracy uh, was a good thing. That, that was also a big part of what they took from their readings of the classics. And uh, and that part gets kind of downplayed, I think. Doesn't it? It's fascinating. And um, as a person who is politically involved in the South, we're in, you know, kind of a small to mid-sized city. And if you're trying to be politically involved, it's all about kind of this event circuit. You know, there's, there's galas and events. And you basically accrue social capital by showing up at them and just like being present and being seen all the time. And then that's how they know you're somebody well, how are you supposed to have time to be on this gala circuit if you have a job? Like, you would never see your kids. And these uh, these landlords are exhausting. Like, they got nothing else to do but throw parties and show up at them. And if you can't do that, you're nobody, which is just a fascinating uh, little holdover from this time period. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's the idea that if you... that. 
your wealth should not be derived from your work, right? That work is a, a kind of a dirty word here. Like Roman aristocrats had a concept that they called the that they called otium and negotium. Negotium is where we get negotiate business. It means basically business, whereas otium was leisure. And it, what defined a true aristocrat was the ability to engage in long periods of leisure, to to go to your country estate and sit out by your nice pool and read your books and write letters to your friends and you know do the kind of stuff that marked you out as an aristocrat to, to practice your your public speaking skills. Um, and, you know, you had people to do those other things for you. So you had people to run your estates. You had obviously people to work on those estates, but then, you know, for the other kind of grubby things that you were doing with your money, like investing in long distance shipping concerns and kind of industrial scale pottery kilns, you had men of business to handle that for you. That was the idea. Yeah. And we're, we're a little off in the weeds from uh, ancient Roman food trade, but. <laughs> oh, it, but it, it leads back because the, despite their kind of disdain for business, these people were what what I think we could probably call kind of rational investors in agricultural infrastructure and agricultural techniques. Like if not the if not the aristocrats themselves, then the people who were doing the active running of the estates were were rational. You know, they were rational in an economic sense. They were rational in an agricultural sense. They had a lot of like very fine grained technical knowledge of these things and of how to produce on a large scale and the markets for which they were producing. Yeah, and that's kind of a point I was trying to make, and some medieval historians got very upset with it. But um, (laughs) the uh, there's this long distance trade, and when you're doing it, you know, when you have small luxury items that are kind of being passed trader to trader, they may have a short route, and they're passing it to each other. That tends to be more the pattern with your Silk Road type trade. Mm -hmm. Um, You didn't really have a lot of traders from ancient Rome going all the way to China. Like it may have happened a little bit, but that wasn't the general pattern. Um, you have lots of tiny exchanges happening that take something a little bit of the way towards its end market. Uh, but you can't, like you mentioned, do that with bulk trade. And so what you need for bulk trade is individual people who know how to get from Alexandria all the way to Rome or Nice or Marseille or wherever they're going. And um, so that's a very different pattern. And you, you need the large ships and the infrastructure and the ports to handle that. And that's a very, very different situation. So It's, it's very different. Yeah. And the, and the late Roman state especially – um, encouraged that. Like the the late Roman economy, which was one that saw really, really large scale exchange of, of these kinds of bulk goods from region to region, um, subsidized the shipping industry. They subsidized uh, big ships. They subsidized ship owners called naviculari. And they said, as long as you do one of the, these two big routes, either the Alexandria to Constantinople or Carthage to, to Rome, um, basically providing grain and in some cases, olive oil for consumption in these big cities, then whatever you do with your, those ships the rest of your time is your business, right? So um, that's what allowed you to, that's what allowed them to make uh, smaller routes, like say Rome to Marseille or Rome to Tarragona or, um, you know, Carthage to Seville to make those routes viable. Um, the, it was, it was basically just subsidized as was the construction of ports. Um, but it made that whole kind of, it was this, it was the base that the whole superstructure of a really complex economy driven by bulk exchange, that that was what it was built on. Right. So tell us a little bit more about this long distance grade trade. Where was it going? How much did Rome like specifically target places for conquest based on like their grain or other goods production? How did they export it? That kind of thing. 
Okay, so the, the baseline thing here is to understand that ancient cities were highly artificial phenomena, right? Like it, even more so than in the present day, it was not a natural thing to have a ton of people living together in close proximity. Not that many people as a total percentage of the population lived in cities, uh, but to, to have a city was an expression of a very particular kind of political organization. And it was political, it was basically political will that made them exist because you had to feed them, right? You had to bring in food from someplace. So the entire Roman world was a world of cities and it was based on, you know, really complex systems of supplying those cities. So in terms of targeting areas for conquest, I think that their utility as a kind of, uh, regions from which to draw grain to support cities was secondary to the act of conquest itself. Like the Romans liked conquering things. They were big into that. Um, just as kind of an expression of, of how aristocrats thought about themselves and their place in the world. But um, the people who came after that first wave of conquest were very definitely thinking about how do we extract from these regions and use them to support the core. So the big grain producing regions in the Roman world were in some order, Egypt, North Africa, and Sicily. Those were the regions that were most suited to uh, growing the kinds of grain the Romans wanted, uh, and they were also easy spots uh, from which to transport to the, the big consuming cities. So Carthage to, to Rome in good weather is only five days. It's only five days at sea. Um, Alexandria to Constantinople in good weather, two weeks. You know, um, Sicily to Rome in good weather, two, three days. So it's really not that far if you're going across the Mediterranean in a big, safe ship. Um, like it's, it's pretty easy to do that. And these are, these are really, really, really big ships. You can move a lot of grain on them. Right. Uh, well, and they were powered by rowing, right? Not sails. So you could predict the time it would take to go. Um, a combination of the two, the really big ships were mostly sail driven. Um, but the, but smaller ships often had some combination of the two it used smaller ships and like oared ships more for kind of the coastal lugging trade, which is, which was also a big deal. It was very underrated because we have these, like the Roman economy, you got to think about it like this. You have these big long distance routes that can span the entire Mediterranean, but then within every region, you have really robust trade as well. So you've got robust trade within Gaul. You've got really robust trade just kind of along these short coastal stretches and at every level they're mutually reinforcing. So strong local trade networks give you strong regional trade networks, which give you strong kind of trans-regional trade networks. You get all of that and you get the exchange of food items happening at every level of that exchange. So we had grain, we had a lot of olive oil and wine moving, and I think to some extent honey and other goods. What do we have some thoughts on that? Yeah, it's those are ones that are harder to track. The the way that we can track the movement of these goods, the grain is fairly straightforward because we know the kind of requirements of the city of Rome. We know and we know the kind of very few places that could supply it. Olive oil and wine are really easy because they traveled in amphorae, of which they're just like we have a really good sense for what kind of amphorae were made where and when. And when they show up on an excavation site, it's really easy to pinpoint it. So that gives us a really good kind of proxy marker for what those exchange networks looked like. Honey is harder because what honey would move in is not as archaeologically visible to us. Um, honey, mead, uh, beer, like, like beer was probably moving in barrels, uh, which do not survive nearly as well. So um, things like that are, are harder for us to track, but, but beer or ale also probably would have been brewed closer to the site of consumption. Like I don't think there was as much long-term trade or long-distance trade in those. Yeah, beer doesn't, you know, it's just bulky. Um, what were they putting grain in? They weren't like just dumping it straight in the ship, right? Was it in sacks or what was it in? I, I would guess sacks. Again, it wouldn't show up especially well archaeologically. So outside of Egypt, if it's, if the those containers survived, it would be in Egypt, which is just hot and dry and, um, think, and kind 
kind of organic materials like that preserve really well. Uh, but I honestly have no idea. I think probably sacks. Hmm, interesting. Um, do you want to talk about uh, food consumption and health? I'd love to. Yeah, I was like, I don't feel like we're done here. I mean, we can be <laughs> if you want to be, but... No, huh? no, let's keep going. Um, yeah, so one of the interesting things about the, the Roman world is, okay, so they, they could produce all this food, they could move it from place to place, but people were not especially healthy. Like when you look at skeletal remains from this period, um, they tend to be shorter. They tend to have pretty strong evidence of malnourish of like childhood malnourishment. Um, their population health in the Roman world was not good. Cities, cities especially, were dirty and by our standards, pretty polluted. Uh, people died young. Cities were net consumers of people. Like more people died in Roman cities than than were born there by a pretty strong measure. Um, that was the case for mostly pretty much all pre-modern cities up until about the 17th to the 18th century. Right. But well, was, a lot of people wound up in them just because they've been pushed off the land somewhere and you have to go somewhere. Yeah, they didn't They didn't have anywhere to go. So the, the pool from which you're drawing is not necessarily an especially healthy one either. Uh, but so what happens after the Roman Empire falls apart, kind of as this complex network of, of uh, food production falls apart, population health generally gets better. Um, people in the early Middle Ages were better fed. They had access to a wider variety of food. Um, they generally ate better. Uh, they were taller. Um, they had there was there's less evidence of of childhood malnutrition. Uh, so population health generally improved. The whole the total population dropped pretty substantially um, by a third in some places, by half or even more in others. But the people who survived were generally healthier. Right. Well, that's an interesting link with. Um you know, kind of talking, you know, there's the Roman Empire, you have the Middle Ages, where you have a very different social system. Slavery mostly goes by the wayside, is replaced by serfdom. And then as we modernize and go through colonialism, slavery comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of an inter- interesting thing to watch. Um, the lowest class that did the agriculture, in a lot of ways, gained a lot of rights during the Middle Ages. And if you want to look at it this way, you can really look at the Enlightenment and colonialism as a time in which uh, those peasant and surf rights were removed. You know, you had uh, the enclosure movement, you had the West African slave trade. It was really kind of like peeling back of those um, those surf and tenor rights that people have had through the Middle Ages, which is kind of interesting. Like we tend to think of the Enlightenment as a period of progress, um, but in some ways it was not so much. Yeah, the, the real high point of kind of peasant well-being in at least Western Europe is the 15th century. It's after the Black Death. So there's a there's a labor shortage. Wages rise. Um, there's more land available. Population health, again, gets better. Like um, kind of post-medieval populations hit a nadir of, of health around 1300. 1300 to 1350 is really kind of the low point for, for population health. Um, Europe is in a lot of places really overcrowded. You're using a lot of really marginal land purely for grain cultivation because you have to in order to feed everybody. Um, but then after the Black Death, after half the population dies – um, population health gets much better and uh, people are eating better. They're eating a lot more meat. They're eating more vegetables uh, and their wages have risen. They have access to more land. They own more land. There is less pressure to do kind of feudal duties um, to do those kind of uh, serfdom in large part disappears through through most of Western Europe around that time just because it's not economically viable anymore. You can't make peasants do things if there aren't enough of them. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of interesting because that's that is the general story and kind of like the classical uh, narrative. Um, actually, in the again the podcast I was just having earlier today with Carrie Lee Merritt, um, in some cases the landlords really fought back, and part of the way they did it was they invented a crime called vagrancy. Like if you're out yeah. on the road, yeah, they invent vagrancy as a crime. Like you're not working for the man, and that's a crime. 
uh, how dare you go out on the road in search of better conditions? And that was kind of a small thing that cropped up in England in the Middle Ages, right after the Black Death, to kind of keep these peasants who suddenly had like options back under control. Um, but this crime of vagrancy was used heavily in the antebellum South um, to punish any white folks who were on the road trying to find work, um, which is really fascinating. And then after the Civil War, when uh, enslaved people were emancipated, then that crime of vagrancy was also applied to black people. Like, you know, how dare you be out here in this public space and I don't approve of it. I arrest you for vagrancy, you know, that kind of thing. So that's yeah, it's, interesting. It's a strong, it's a really strong tool of social control. And it also, it speaks to the kind of the maintenance of a social structure in which everybody is supposed to have a place. Like it's a, it's a really strong kind of tool if you're trying to maintain a super hierarchical society and one in which people are supposed to be bound to one another up and down this kind of vertical, the vertical rungs of society. This is Farm to Tabor, part one of a two-parter with Patrick Wyman, historian and host at the Tides of History podcast. Stay tuned for part two. Part two.